Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school, you're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. Ursula Burns has had an impressive business career that's often summarized by an historic achievement, that when she became the CEO of Xerox back in 2009, she was the first ever Black woman to head a Fortune 500 company. And as a side note, Ursula actually held on to that title exclusively until only this year, when the Fortune 500 list featured two Black women. We'll get to the corporate world's painfully slow diversity progress later. But now, the former Xerox CEO is adding another big first to her achievements, first-time author. I'm not a writer. I don't pretend to even be one. And when this thing started, I could not believe that I had committed to do this. She did commit to it and finished it. And her memoir called Where You Are Is Not Who You Are is out now, and it's fantastic. Unlike a lot of books written by business leaders, this one is about so much more than the corporate world. Ursula gets very personal, sharing her childhood, growing up in public housing in New York City, her Catholic school days, her marriage, and yes, her 30-year ascent to the tippy top of Xerox's ladder. In her prologue, Ursula admits writing this life journey was one of the most difficult things she's ever had to do, which, let's be honest, is saying a lot. So we started our conversation there. Why do you think it was so hard, Ursula? Because I did it right in the middle of a huge number of transitions in my life, right? One was the most obvious was this pandemic. So I started the book before the pandemic and then had to go back and reread it for the 50th time in the context of the pandemic and bring the book forward, some of the messages forward to the pandemic time. That was one one big issue. The other is my husband passed away in January of 2019, very unexpectedly. I know, I'm and, so sorry, Ursula. Yeah, and I was in the middle of this thing as well. It was close to the end and it really did. The book made it really difficult to kind of live in that moment because I had to, you know, live in that moment 
looking back at all of the, at my life, my whole life, of which most of it was with him. It's, it's really hard to kind of put it in context. I, it was just very difficult from that perspective as I well. I can't imagine, honestly, having to do that and also deal with grieving and the fact that your husband's death was so unexpected. And, you know, I found when my husband died, uh, gosh, now 20 plus years ago, Mm. even trying to concentrate was next to impossible. So very, very, very difficult. You know, so exactly on point what you just said, how, you know, you don't think about, I didn't, my mother died when I was 25 and that was a shock in my life. Right. And she was very young. She was 49 when she died. And a parent dying is one thing. It's crushing. A spouse dying, even though my husband was 20 years older than I was, he was 80 years old when he died. His di- his death was unexpected. I mean, it was literally, even though we knew he was getting older, it was not something that I had brought into a context that I could think about at all. So when I had to, when I'm writing this book, he he dies, and then I have to basically stop writing it. Primarily because I couldn't concentrate on anything. And the things that I had to concentrate on to write and to review it were so um, horrible. From a context standpoint, I didn't want to think about my mother's death. I didn't want to think about really great times, right? Because then I didn't want to think about really bad times. So basically, you have to kind of step away from the book for a, a, a long time, step away from writing and thinking about it. And then the third thing is we were going through a really tough political time where there was not a message that was coming from anywhere that was like peaceful. <laughs> there was well, no, of course. there was no place to rest. you like your mind. It was every time you, every time I woke up and if I read anything about what was happening in politics in the U S it just threw me into another, another tailspin. So I had to take literally when they say timeout, I had to take timeout and just kind of move away and not think about it and not think about my life and not think about how, you're trying to kind of put it in the context of a book because you said what you said was so you don't live your life in reverse. You live your life going forward. So you never think, you know, the day that passed right before you, which I retell days that happened before me in the book are not consequential when they're happening. So you don't think about them in that context. You just think about them as, okay, it's another day. And, but when you retell them, you retell them from this perspective as if you knew they were consequential and they aren't right. And I'm an engineer, so everything was kind of illogical about the whole thing. And then finally I got through it. My goodness, thank goodness I got through the whole process. And my the woman who helped me helped me write, her name is Linda Frankie, is very, very good. She was as good a because I did all of the writing, right? I tell her, you know how you know how the process goes. Right. She tells you back, then you have to read it and put it in context. And I would dwell on certain things and try to become really precise. And she was just very good at at kind of moving me on. Basically. Not letting you get too deep into the minutia. Yeah, but, but in addition to that, of course, you talk about the political scene. We have this massive racial reckoning mm-hmm. uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement that intersected with the pandemic. So uh, that's something that I think you've lived your entire life and career. On the other hand, did that change the tone of the book? Or did you, I know you had to go back and make sure that you did it from the vantage point of where we are rather than where you were when the book started. Absolutely. And it did change the tone a little bit. My daughter keeps telling me that I have to watch to not be shrill right? <laughs> because sometimes I get, yeah, when I get into to not be shrill, because, you know, sometimes you get to the point where you just are so engaged, so angry, so 
um, emotional about the topic that you get really wrapped up into it and it gets um, almost like a lecture. Well, tell your daughter that's a very gendered word, Ursula. And I can't <laughs> believe at her age, she's telling you not to be shrill. I need to talk to her. <laughs> she, my daughter is actually very um, astute on these types of things. She's a writer. She used it to me for a very specific reason. <laughs> it's kind of like the way I, I raised the kids, I would get into it. But the point was that I had to kind of become emotional, but not be so emotional. And there's some points in the, in the book and some points even in the retelling. And when I was speaking in press around, around the, you know, George Floyd's murder around this whole time, how emotional and how troubling it was to me that we are, that we are at a point in this country. I'm at a point in my life where I have, I have quote unquote arrived, Katie. I mean, I'm, you know, literally I have more money than I could possibly imagine. I am engaged in places I never thought I would be. I have access to people that I can't even, can't even imagine. I know much less hang out with regularly. I'm very kind of set. And I now, and even for my whole life, I've been involved with kind of pushing it out and giving back. But I sit here and I sat there and said, can you, can I believe, can Ursula Burns believe that this is 2020 and we're still talking about and dealing with and living with very visually people who have total disregard for other people's lives, who, and, and, and people who speak about it in leadership as if it were a transaction, you know, just, it just happens. So no, there's a bigger context to this. There's more emotion to this. There are people who are affected in this and it has become ordinary. And that was the, so the point was that, you know, George Floyd and his family, George Floyd suffered the ultimate and his family suffered. But I don't think that the, the political leadership understood that the nation was struggling and that we, even though it wasn't our direct family, we black and white, young and old were struggling. And instead of getting any kind of solace or comfort, we got unbelievable responses like, you know, why is this such a big deal? This whole context of, well, he was a criminal, just a whole bunch of unfeeling in the middle of a pandemic. In the, so there was this like this kind of big gap of, don't you know what we need as a nation? Don't you know what we need as people? Don't you know what we need as a world? And the answer was, they, the answer was, no, I don't know. And if I did know, I don't particularly care. And, and do you think that things are changing, Ursula? I can't help but think as I look around, that we are in the midst of a seismic cultural shift in attitudes about race, diversity, equality, inclusion, that these things are being talked about in a way in my lifetime they have never been talked about. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Thank God. And do you, do you see that too? Absolutely. It is such a and I'm asked all the time, asked all the time whether or not this is a, you know, is it going to last? So I always put it in the context of the of Hamilton, right? Is it a moment or a movement? And we are, it could be a moment if we let it be a moment. If we just basically back off, we meaning citizens in the world, we just back off black and white, male and female, and just said the status quo, the way we were living before is Generally, okay, we'll just go back to that. Or if we, that's the moment. The movement, which is what I feel, 
which is what I think you're saying you feel and see as well, that the movement is, we're not, we're not able to forget everything and move backwards. We have to move forward. I don't know what that is going to look like at the end, but I know it's not going to be what it was before. If we keep our voices in the right tone and are really inclusive of a lot of people's ideas, we will actually make progress, not just change. So it'll be change for the better. I am so optimistic about this happening. I'm generally optimistic, but I'm so optimistic about this happening because we, we people will not allow it to just slip, slip back. We will not allow the, what I call the essential worker, right? the essential worker who became essential only when we wanted them to be essential. But before that, we didn't pay any attention to them. Most of these people, we wouldn't even pay them more than $15 an hour. We, you know, these essential workers became core and critical to our lives. Black people, under-resourced people, became visible to us for the first time, really. And I think it's a, it's a good time. And the book, part of the journey of the book, when I read it again in the final time, was I, I how do I say this? I started there. That's my life. That's who I was. That's who my mother was for sure. She was a person, an invisible person. In and fact, was, mm -hmm. I want to ask you about her because you have had such a fascinating life, Ursula's so impressive. Your mom was an absolute saint and she died, as you mentioned, at 49. She was an immigrant from Panama. Uh, I was so struck when you wrote about her biggest annual income was $4,400. A year. Three, a year, yes. Had three children, um, raised you all to value the, the importance of education. Your mom was a truly amazing woman. And one of the things that prompted me to ask you that, that question now is that 49, she died. If she had had access to better medical care, for example, you're convinced that she would have lived a much longer life. But talk about your mom for a minute, because what an unsung heroine of not only your life, but probably represents a lot of women like her. Yeah, I think that this is the backbone of America. It, it is the dream of America embodied in my mother. She did it. She basically came here with very little, like literally nothing. She had a high school education. She at the time had a husband. He was, he left early. My mother never spent time thinking about or talking about what we did not have. That was not part of our daily discussions ever, including my father. Never, literally, my aunts told me about my father. So my mother was just this person who, it, when I tell the story on the, when you look back, it, it seems like she was this perfect saint. She was a typical mother. You know, she, she cared about her children immensely. She sacrificed everything in her sphere for us. That's basically, she lived for us. She had no idea she was going to die at 49, obviously. She thought that if she raised good kids, and this is part of her spiritualism, her religion, that if she thought she raised good kids, that God would take care of everything else. She thought if she raised kids that worked hard and took care of themselves and, big for her, took care of each other, that God would take care of everything. So she had these fundamental 
beliefs that a lot of, you know, just regular, good old fashioned, hard work, keep an eye on the people who are close to you. She struggled. And when I was about 16 or 17, I realized my mother was really struggling. You know, when you're kids, you just figure this is the way everybody lives. My mother literally woke up early every single day, went to bed late every single night. And every day she had to figure out a way to have food for us on the table, to keep us physically safe, to get enough money to pay basic things. I, I learned later how much she bartered for just about everything, how she would go to my high school and have to have discussions with my high school because she couldn't pay the tuition. My mother paid $65 a month for me to go to high school. That's $650 a year. She made $4,400. It, it, it's just unthinkable. But the reason why it wasn't unthinkable for me when I was growing up was that she didn't make it obvious. She just made us obvious to ourselves, if you know what I mean. We right. were, it was all about us. And she never complained. She never, never you really complained. didn't know. I mean, you said at 16, she was struggling, but but she never she never talked to you all about it. I realized it, it when, I, when I was in high school, because I went to a all-girl Catholic high school, basically a high school above our means, obviously. Um, but it, it, really great school. I mean, high school in, in the Midtown New York City, Cathedral High School. And when I went there for the first time, I, would take the, I took the bus out of our neighborhoods. I was, what, six, 15, 14, I guess, when I first went. This first time I took the bus out way up to, quote unquote, Midtown. I lived in the Lower East Side and that's where we stayed. We stayed there. That was our world. And when I moved, when I was going up and down on this bus, I started to realize people live in these great neighborhoods. Was just, this was pretty cool. And they had things besides bodegas and, and the like. And then I went to school and met other children and their parents and realized just the look of my mother, the look, how she dressed, how she looked, she was carrying a lot of weight. You could tell that she had a lot on her shoulders, even though it didn't, you couldn't see it physically, right? Obviously, but you could see it in her body. And that's when I said, whoa, this is, this is taking a lot from her. And is that what I, inspired you to achieve yeah. and to really uh, pursue excellence? Because clearly you're a highly intelligent person, you know, and you went to to, to college, you started, I guess, in chemical engineer and then engineering, yeah. and then you transferred to mechanical engineering. You got your master's in mechanical engineering. I mean, what inspired you to to be such a huge achiever? Yeah, my it was about in the beginning. What perspective do you have, right? I mean, I had no perspective on companies and hierarchies and CEOs. None. What I wanted to do is get a job that I that earned enough money. That's how I picked chemical engineering. This was very insightful choice about, you know, I just went to a book. Well, you're very practical. You're very practical. I need a job that can pay the most money after four years of college. We had no option but to go to college. My mother said, basically, no choice. I would always say, how are you going to pay for it? She said, don't worry about that. That's me. You take care of your business. I'll take care of my business. And so I looked it up and it was chemical engineering. I was going to be a chemical engineer. Four years of college, you make the most money, $25,000 or whatever it would have been. $25,000, $25,000. I was like, oh my God, I, could, I mean, $25,000. We can change our life for $25,000. It was that straightforward, that practical decision. No complications, literally $25,000 a year, four years of college, that's it. Of course, I didn't go to four years. I went to five and a half years. I got my master's degree. And by the time I ended college, you know, my mother was to the point so sick and was dying, literally a couple of years after that. 
So right when I could have started to switch it back and give it to her and make her life a little bit more comfortable, which Katie would have been easy. Think about this, right? Five, I could have made her life easier without too much complications. And I ran out of time. You know, I, I basically just ran out of time. And she, so she, she died in a hospital of, that is, you know, a, the center, the heartbeat of hospitals in New York. But this hospital, it was Bellevue, was so, you know, just overrun at that point. It was so crowded, taking care of all kinds of things. Age was, you, you know how it was at that time. And so she didn't get great care. I think that they, this is not that the people ignored her. It was just that I was not capable of pushing it. If my mother had gotten sick when I was older, I would have literally been able to get- Advocate for her. Right, advocate for her. And I just didn't even know how to do it, much less that it was possible to do. You know, I had no idea. When my husband was sick the first time, when he got ill way before he died, a lung collapse. When he went into the hospital, literally, I was (laughs) the general. Literally, this is what's going to happen. This day, you guys can't, I want to know what's going on who's going to see him, et cetera. If I had half of that, I, my mother would have surely been alive. Sounds but, like you, you have a lot of, uh, I don't know. It sounds like you you feel a lot of guilt about a that. Huge amount of guilt, huge amount of guilt. It took me a lot of time and I'm not going to cry on this to get over the fact that you can't, you can't live your life backwards to forwards, right? If you would have known you would have done it differently, but of course you didn't know. So you can't, kind of keep winding back about, well, I should have done this. I should have done that. It wasn't that I knew what to do and didn't do it. I had no clue what to do. And that's one of the reasons why now I push so hard for basic things that as citizens of the world, we have to have, we shouldn't have to have somebody who, who has time and energy and power and position to advocate for us, to get things that are like the Pavlov's need, right? Anyway, it, it took a lot of time for me to get past that. And even now I cry when I talk about it because she should have been able to enjoy our success more, more, not financially, just being there. If you know what I mean. also financially, I mean, the idea that you could have been able to improve her quality of life. And in a way you pay tribute to her, Ursula, because your title is where you are is not who you are. And that came from your mom. Yeah, my mother had these amazing Panamanian English translation sayings that, that were, she said them all the time. And of course, when you're growing up, you think, you know, can I hear this one more time? I'm going to explode if she says this one more time. You know, leave behind Max. My name is Ursula Maxine Burns. Yeah, Max. right. Max. Um, God doesn't like ugly. That's what she said to me all the time. God doesn't like ugly. And that meant you yourself can't be ugly, not things, you. God doesn't like ugly, so you can't be an ugly person. She would say, leave behind more than you take away. That's how we'll measure whether or not you're successful. It's not about anything else. It's about whether or not you leave in every interaction. More, you, Oh, my goodness. <laughs> on and on and on. She says, the world, you, don't worry about it. The world can't happen to you. You have to happen to the world. You know, all these, all of these statements. <laughs> like, and now, and I say it in the book, throughout my life, I lived with these statements in my head. I literally buried in my head, didn't say them out loud all the time, but I, I literally think about them and was raised with them in my soul. And that's 
what I'm, I'm not a perfect person by, by any stretch of the imagination, if, if you know me, um, but I do, you know, I actually spend a lot of time reflecting on whether, you know, what can I do better to make sure that I leave behind more than I take away, to make sure that I am happening to the world. I'm not sitting back and saying, oh my God, I wish it, uh, those people would make it better. And one of the reasons why I spend a lot of time speaking and speaking out particularly to younger people is that we have to engage. We cannot count on others to take care of us. We have to take care of ourselves and we have to take care of others. And if we do it from that perspective and everybody does it, then people will, people will be taking care of us. My entire journey, my entire success in life, every single inch of it is based on the fact that I had a great start in life and I had help along the way. <laughs> the great start in life is necessary, but not sufficient, right? So it got that. And then I had unbelievable, just either support from people who I don't know, fellowship here or scholarship here or job here and people who I do know. I, I, I write about Vernon Jordan and as you know, he just passed away and he was my absolute shining light outside of my family was this man who decided that he was gonna take me under his wing, plain and simple. That was it. And out of nowhere, starting in about 1990, there was this kind of guy in the background, you know, he's really big. He's, and he would always kind of be not too far away from unbelievable experiences. I'm just, how did this happen? How did I get met President Clinton in 1992? Vernon Jordan. Said, come on, let's go. Met Barack Obama for the first time. Vernon said, oh, I'm going to a thing. Are you free? Yeah, come on over. Just context connections by people who just said, yeah, I'll take her with me. I'll, what do you think would have happened if, if, if you hadn't had the kind of mentors that you were so fortunate to have, Ursula, from Vernon Jordan to Ken Chenault to yeah. all kinds of leaders who saw something special in you? and said, we're going to take her under our wing and we're going to cu cultivate that spark and that passion that she has. I would have had a good life. The difference between a good life, earning a good living, and an amazingly great life, for me, were, were these people. So I literally took, a, my mother laid the foundation for me to have a good life. These people transformed that good life into a life where I write a book and people are going to read it, into a life where, where George Floyd is murdered and I have a voice that people will listen to to try to help to amplify the issues that we are dealing with and to amplify my ideas about some of the solutions, my ideas that are cultivated and gotten from, from friends. What The difference between that and having a good life is our friends and support and, and you can't literally shoulders to stand on and people to push you and encourage you and smack you when you're doing silly things, which everybody, my husband was one of these people as well, just who just basically said, just, you know, stop, settle down, et cetera. It's the difference between ordinary and extraordinary. That's what friends support, particularly the kind of support that I got. That's what the outcome is. When we come back, how Ursula led Xerox in a world that no longer needs Xeroxing. That's right after this. This is it, your moment. 
This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I was fascinated to learn that you really didn't deal with head-on racism yourself until you got to college. Yeah. But the reason why, Katie, is because we lived in an environment where we were all the same. I mean, so... Well, but that at the Catholic school, for example, when you went there. Not a lot of problems with race for me. My brother seemed to have had more, um, as I found out later. But for me, it was it was not. I was a very um, and I say this in the book. I lived inside my head. I was I'm a very self-contained person, generally an introvert. So I actually flew below the radar screen in many most of my life. I literally did what people said fairly compliant, obeyed the rules, quote unquote, obeyed the, rule, obeyed the rules, performed fairly well. So I was, I was more, um, I was just easier to deal with. When I got to high school and then to college is when I started to, to open up my mouth more. And obviously then people started to notice me more. And that was when I started to see things more. But I think that when I was, particularly when I was growing up, I saw very little of this what we now call, like, what I saw, overt racism, where people literally disregarded me and my accomplishments because I was, because I had, I looked a certain way. And you, one of the things that, that was good about that is that it was such BS. You know, it, it was, um, how do I say this? It was great, great foundation because it said it was so BS. It's, it's, it's a debunking in my own heart. You know that when you see a, Black, when I see a black person, 
they, they're just regular people who can accomplish what everybody else can accomplish. And so I didn't kind of grow up in this whole stigma kind of a thing. I even grew up in a bad neighborhood. I talk about this, just a really bad neighborhood. And just thought, okay, we just live in a bad neighborhood. In hindsight, you realize, particularly when I left my neighborhood, that there were choices being made by funding officials, by leaders, that we could put less resources there because these people live there. We'll put more resources there because these kind of people live there. But I didn't grow up with it in my face. It's amazing what you recognize in hindsight, isn't it, yeah, Ursula? And I'm sure that this writing this book helped you kind of put those pieces together and recognize that that racism and prejudice against, you know, listen, you have the trifecta, black, poor, female. I, I say this in the book. I, a guy told me this when I was in, I think I was nice. So whatever, third or fourth grade, I was in the class. He had come to school. I went to a Catholic grade school, he came to school to speak about something. I don't don't even remember what it was. And I, and I we were told to ask questions and we had all these questions arranged and I had to ask one of the questions. I asked the question, he responded. At the end, when we were leaving, we had to go up and shake his hand. And he said to me, you had a, such a great question. And, and the, I don't know exactly how he said it, but what he said to me was, you know, you're really smart and it's such a great question. It's kind of too bad that you're, <laughs> You're black and you're a girl and you're poor, basically. And literally, I, I put that away in the back of my head for years and then remembered it when I got a little bit older and remembered it in such a way that, that it struck me that, yeah, there was one of those two, one of those three things that was really a problem, right? the poor part, which is something that we can work to eliminate. Um, throughout the world, abject poverty. We, and by the way, we were not, ab, we didn't have abject poverty, but we were like one level above it. I, I can't give people the, the understanding of the, the life that I grew up in. We had, my mother had nothing, nothing. We lived in a horrible building, walk into our apartment. It was a sanctuary. Didn't have a lot of stuff in it, but it was clean and organized. But anyway, this, and I said, oh my God, black and, and a girl is what he said. Black and a girl are not things that I would trade off even if somebody said to me, you have an option to start differently. I, I kind of like both of those things about me. And how can that be a strike against you? And I realized as I got older that it actually was. It actually was. And the, the, way, the only way to turn that around is to use this, this isolation that you feel if you're in a big crowd to your advantage. And I say this in the book, it, when I started working, if I, there was a big meeting and all of the employees had to go or the, all of the engineers had to go, I guarantee you, if I raised my hand, somebody would call me because the only person who looked like me in the room was me. Literally, when I started at Xerox, there must have been 10 black women anywhere near engineering in, in the company. I, I, I can't I don't I met no black women, none. So you, you transformed your differences into an advantage. To an advantage by basically saying, eh, they're going to call, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty smart. That kind of, I kind of knew that. And if, and I had an opinion about everything. My mother would say, always say, you're, you could be wrong and strong. Right? So I had an opinion about everything, even if it was a bad opinion. Um, and so I basically, and I was definitely taught early to speak out, to literally um, not sit down and kind of just, who you know, taught you that? Was that your mom? 
My mom, my mom was you know, really pretty basic. She said, if you have a point of view, she didn't quite say it in these words, speak up. Nobody's going to be able to say to me, read your, nobody's going to read your mind. My mom's motto for all of us was let them know you're there. Let them know you're there. Yep. So it's, and it's and I don't simple. know where even she got that because she was kind of shy and of yep. a totally different generation like your mom was. Um, obviously, different circumstances and mm-hmm. um, much more privileged, but but not uber privileged uh, mm-hmm. upbringing. But she she really kind of understood, especially for her daughters, the importance of letting people know you're there, of not being a shrinking violet, of speaking your mind, of being. And this is this is a generational thing, right? Because if you think about your mother, and my mother, we're in the same um, generational times. They were they were raising us at the start of this kind of outcry by women. It was the beginning of this uh, by women, the modern outcry by women to be heard and to be, to have, we start to realize, women start to realize that there was a little bit more to us <laughs> than the public, male public was giving us credit for. And so- Or, you know, our goal in life didn't have to be to please our bosses and to make them feel like the man. Absolutely, or, or necessarily, to please our any male colleague, including our husband, and make them feel like the man at our expense, right? So I absolutely understand how relationships work. And you, obviously a lot of it has to do with making the person feel good. But what, what happened in the past is we did that to the exclusion of any look on ourselves. And what we were starting to live through, I know I was living through, was this idea that I had a point of view and I had some worth. And so this had to be a little bit more of a partnership um, in marriage, for sure. Right. And in fact, that's so critically important. You talk a lot about how your husband, Lloyd, supported you through the years. And we've seen millions of women drop out of the workforce during the pandemic because domestic labor is just not evenly divided. And, uh, you know, we've been set back decades Decades. in terms of progress. And I, I know that that having a supportive spouse and having someone who helps is so critically important and was so critically important to your success. I want to, I have to ask you about Xerox and being the CEO. So you were one of these longtime loyal employees of, of a corporation and that happens a lot less often now, as you know, millennials and Gen Z's are, are masters at job hopping. They are going to have 14 jobs or so on average before they retire. But you were as loyal as the day is long to Xerox. Um, And that loyalty paid off. You became CEO of the company in 2009. Is that right, Ursula? Correct. correct. uh, um, But at the same time, holy cow, you kind of inherited a bit of a shit show, excuse my French, because you had to manage the decline of a company that had really seen its heydays, you know, decades before because of, of, of massive changes in, in technology in the world. And how hard was that? And what kind of shape was Xerox in when you suddenly found yourself in charge? Yeah, the good news about this is that I was preceded by a woman. Right. Anne Mulcahy, who really inherited the shit show. She was the French for description of the company. The company is a great company, but it was a mess when she got it. We were literally, we were running out of cash when she took over the company. That's right. It almost went bankrupt, it right? Went bankrupt, right. And she really, she really laid the foundation for Xerox to have another set of generations. And, but by the time I got the company and I was, 
her second uh, for my whole, you know, for my whole senior career. Um, and she made me president in 2007 and a member of the, and the board elected me a member of the board in 2007, preparing me for CEO. But one of the things that I realized from Anne was that, you know, uh, that there was a, that there was a future that we didn't have to succumb to the easy route of just the easier route of just kind of letting it happen. It's, it, because there was a lot of explanation and defense about letting it happen. Literally, we were being um, substituted. We were being um, made irrelevant by technology. We right. Were, we were running. Every time we ran into a problem, we found a new solution, found a new solution. So we were always running and catching up. But the fundamental value of the company as a document management company in the old sense, as you can see today, is literally um, no longer as valuable uh by yeah a, by i a, mean that's right by a, by you a, were by you a, were rendered obsolete pretty obsolete, much literally by these things right? yeah right? by these things and they're smaller and smaller and by the way perfect by and the cloud so, i mean the, cloud. the cloud it's like There's no need to have the file cabinets the paper and the storage so yes we kept running when i took over the thing that was really great about it was that we were again cornered if you know what i mean there was some there's something interesting about having few choices and people say, Oh my God, you're a great strategist, a great mind. I said, if you have a thousand choices, making the right one is probably harder than if you have two, right? Right. <laughs> if you have two, you make one, one of them is probably stupid. The other, and we had no choice, but to look for different options for the future of this company. We had no choice, but to do that. And fortunately I had a predecessor and a board who said, let's take some chances. And look, not every single one of them worked, but a lot of them did. And still very, very fraught time for Xerox during my tenure. And even today, this whole idea about recreating itself yet again to become more to become relevant yet again will keep happening to Xerox. Not every single company has a right to exist forever. I say this as well. And at some point you may have to say done, done. But I, I think that when I was there for sure, and I think even now it's too early to call that for a company like Xerox that still has an amazing number of people that still can deal law, well with large corporations, et cetera. So there's a way to kind of extract value. You should do that as long as possible. The great news is that I was, I was so long in the company that it was part of my life. It was, you know, it, it was in your DNA, really. my DNA. Literally, I woke up every day, walked into this place. There was no way in the world I could just sit back and let it kind of dribble, dribble away. I had to, you know, not only me, but 10,000 people, 50,000 people, a board of directors, a management team. We had to fight for it, fight for so it. So tough, it. man, though. It's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic in some to, ways, to isn't extent, it? And to a large extent for pieces of our business, absolutely. Absolutely. And I talk about this in the context of a couple of things. After I retired, it became a more popular. I'm not saying I started this, but one of the things that I struggled with continuously was whether or not it was reasonable or fair to disrupt people's lives as dramatically as you do when you make them redundant in an environment like Rochester, New York, which is where a lot of our employees were at the time, or other, other communities that were basically 
dependent on an industry or two in their towns. Is there a way for us to kind of balance it out a bit? And I said this, I talk about this in the book. We had a lot of time when I was CEO, but even right before that, when I was president, when we were going through it, when Anne was CEO and I first started working for her, but we had to make decisions about whether or not we were going to just lay off 10,000, thousands of people. And if we could save like 50 of them by not maximizing profit, by just not maximizing profit, could we balance it such that it could be a little bit more graceful transitions? That is today a standard discussion that CEOs have to have because communities, governments are saying out loud, what the heck are you doing? You can't, I do get profit and profitability, right? but I also get the fact that you can't just dump on Rochester, New York, a thousand more unemployed people. The government is going to end up taking care of them. So you transfer wealth to the shareholder at the expense of the government coffers. Right. And I think I think now companies are coming under much greater scrutiny and this, you know, you know, race for quarterly profits and and all that is just companies are expected to be more humanitarian, honestly. Yeah. And they have uh, to be full citizens of the world. They can full citizens of the world have to be engaged and interested in their shareholders wealth and profit. They have to be engaged and interested in the communities that they work and live in. And social issues. They have to be engaged in government and social issues. I'm on this all the time, even when I was CEO, on this idea that we can't be silent. How in the world can we be silent? When we come back, Ursula's unflinching advice for today's business leaders. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet. Are you paying for your me time with just any credit card in your wallet? While you shouldn't stop treating yourself, you should start paying with a credit card that has perks. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? A free flight? Room upgrades? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. 
Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and term supply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I wanted to ask you about uh, this year's Fortune 500 list because they, it saw a few records. 41 CEOs are women. There are two black women. But still, progress is so slow. And I know you write about feeling this otherness. And, you know, I thought it was fascinating that, that you know, the fact that you don't play golf and that you would never play at Augusta because they didn't accept black members until 1990. And, you know, and why should you have to play golf if you don't like golf, you know? But what else can be done to improve these numbers when you consider that women make up, you know, 52% of the professional workforce and the number in C-suite jobs is under 10%? I mean... You know, I've been talking about this, Ursula, and and interviewing people about this for 30 years. Maybe for 30 years. And let me tell you what I, I come to the conclusion, and I said this out loud, and of course I'm getting more blowback on this in a little bit, but I'm going to continue saying it until, I, until something else changes. I actually became a fan of quotas. Let me tell you what happened with women. The numbers that you just um, told us about, are a, a recent um, reality. 10 years ago, 15, literally the number was a quarter of that. We were like 15 to half of that. Let me tell you what happened. California, <laughs> Europe, UK and Western Europe started to talk about the fact that their states or the governments were going to require companies to have a diverse board. And they said 30% of the board should be. California did it, whatever. Surprise, let me tell you what happened. Out of the woodwork came these fully formed adults called women who were ready and able to serve on boards. Before, it, you said it, 30 years. For my entire career, 40 years in business, we've been talking about this. It's really hard to find them. You know, I, and then it's the same ready? women on every board. I'm like, wait board. a second. But hello? Yeah, hello. Ursula Burns could be on. I am on lots of them, but I could be on 20 of them. But it's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Here's, the, here's why I say quotas work for a while. Quotas are the penalty for not doing what you should be doing by yourself. Right? We've been talking about it for years, 30 years, as you say, 40 years. I'll do it. We can't find them. We don't really know. So on, so on, so on. We find, literally, I don't know where California said. And out of nowhere appeared these women. Enough. They're not all the same. There's these 40 that they're out. They, they appeared in the C-suite. Oh, my goodness. They were born yesterday, educated the day after yesterday. And today they became CEO. No, they've been there all the time. The problem with this progress, though, I, I will tell you the, the thing that troubles me is that We've made the progress in women with the exclusion of women of color of any sort. Most of these, as you, you said it, most of this is majority women, white women. And we've made that progress without a lot of progress in brown and black males. So the step, it's, we can't seem to kind of get the momentum rolling across the board. We always have to make, it's always a choice. And I say 
women, white women, have to help us, right? Because they have to, now they're sitting on these, in the C-suite and on the boards, they have to ask the question, what the hell are you guys doing? Why in the world are you not, why in the world don't we as a leadership team or a board have more, even more diversity than just gender diversity? So it's taking us forever. It has required pushes, um, you know, legal pushes, nudges, whatever the heck it is to make the progress. Hopefully we'll make enough progress that that becomes redundant, that those legal needs become, or legal means become redundant. I'm hoping that that's the case, but until it becomes the case, I want people, I want NASDAQ to keep pushing and saying, no, you're not gonna list on this, on this um, mechanism to, to sell your company, to pre present your company until you present yourself to the world like a fully formed company, which is a company that has a lot of people of different types working. And in fact, that, that leads me to, to my final question. What did you tell some of these people who called you probably in a bit of a panic, Ursula, yep. Yep. Uh, when this racial justice movement became too loud to ignore? I mean, it wasn't new, but it was too loud to ignore at that point. Exactly. Exactly. What would you tell business leaders about how to improve uh, diversity and equality and inclusion in their companies? Right. And we did this through a mechanism. I did after George Floyd died, I remember flying to London, back to London, landing and getting a call almost immediately. I got to my flat um, from a very, very good uh, European business leader. Amazing guy. Um, all of the right foundational elements to actually have a sensible conversation with. He called me and said, I think I got this, but I'm a little confused. It was unbelievable. I think I got it. And I just want to talk to you about what's actually happening. This was the move, the marches that were happening all over the world. I mean, they, George Floyd is killed in Minneapolis, in Minnesota and people in London are marching. Chinese people, uh, you know, young, everybody. So he said he just didn't, he, he, think, he thought he got it, but he didn't really get it. And I, my question to him was, I won't say the name. What, what, I'm more than happy to talk to you about this, but why are you calling me? He said, what do you mean? I said, why don't you call, talk to somebody on your board or talk to you know, somebody in your management team. His was the response. I don't have anybody on my board and my management team that's any of color. I said, what? So yeah, I said, well, first, first thing to do, start close to home. You get, you have to start close, you have to fix your house before you can tell a whole bunch of people how to fix their houses, right? You don't have a, a, a you don't have a diverse management team. You don't have a diverse board. Shame on you. I didn't quite say it this way. What do you do? Start close to home. Literally, you have to have people who are in your house nudging you along the way, giving you insight. So first of all, I tell business leaders, get a diverse team around you. Get a diverse board around you. You're the people who you have to have a diverse organization, not because you just want to be, quote unquote, altruistic, even though that's reason enough, because it's not altruism it's called equality. But even if you have to be altruistic, OK, you don't need to go that far. Results are better. We, it's been studied in every business school you can imagine. Diverse teams perform better than non-diverse teams. Diverse companies' profitability and longevity, their future readiness, is significantly better than non. Okay, so we don't have to actually do this anymore because we want you to feel bad. You have to do it because you serve your shareholders better. First, start close, close to home. Two, literally speak up. Uh, this voting rights thing that's happening right now, Companies are actually debating whether they have a voice in this. I keep saying, what do you mean? Well, they have a, we're not talking about supporting 
radical ideas here. We're not even talking about supporting a black or brown person I'm not, or Asian person. We're just talking about supporting the right of any citizen. Well, you saw right. Ken Frazier and Ken Chenault come out and yeah. talk about what was happening in Georgia. Absolutely. Ken Frazier, the CEO of, CEO of, Merck. of Merck. Yeah. And myself and 70 others went out, black and brown business leaders went out and signed this letter and paid for them to be full page ads in a journal and the Times, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Why? Because first of all, we were ashamed that we hadn't spoken up before and we wanted it to be a yell. Everybody understand. And we were surprised at how few other business leaders were speaking up. It shouldn't be required that black people speak up about all inequality that affects them. Inequality affects everyone, everyone. So second thing is make sure that you speak up on issues that you are engaged as a business, not a personal crusade, a business. You need, we need a free and fair democracy for our business to operate well. That's all you have to do is, that's all you have to tell the state leaders. That's all we need. And this is what we think that is. Oh, so on, so on, so on. Second, so therefore get involved. First, start close to home. Second, get involved. Do not let this crap slide by you. It's not only about profits in the quarter. It's about readying the world, readying the United States for its future. Third, inspect the numbers. I am always surprised at this. Facts and data don't lie. Look at pay equity in your company. Look at performance of different types of people in your company. Look at the numbers track when you see problems, fix it. And we, you know, we do this with profit. I mean, we literally, we do it with profit with, uh, you know, to the penny. We don't do it with other areas. Well, we don't have enough, enough women. Well, why? I don't really know. And next year we don't have enough women. Well, well it's just not a priority for them. But priority. by the way, if they want to retain a workforce of young people, I mean, it's, it's, it, you know, they say all altruism is self-serving, but there is I a real. You, I'll take uh, that for now. I'll take that. Yeah. I'll take that for now. I, I literally don't like this to the extent that it's becoming where everybody who gives money puts a name on things, but that's a different, a totally different show. But I tell you what, if we need to start with self-serving altruism, which is, I tell you what, a lot of how I got forward, you know, scholarships were named after people, right? So I'm, I say, God bless you. Thank you very much. Or whoever it is that you admire, bless you. Thank you very much. I do believe that there is an equal amount of altruism that is done with no lights on them, right? And I'm really into civil servants lately. You know, I just started to realize how I mean, how thankless a job these guys are. Most of us don't even know who they are, but look at them. They're hustling away, trying to get, you know, whatever, whatever done. I think that we're at a point where it's not a moment, it's a movement where you cannot ignore the voices of people. Technology helps here. We cannot ignore people just paying attention to how you're doing. People in this movement have a huge amount of power. They cannot um, minimize how important their voice and their impact is. If they want to see change, they have to speak up. If I want to see change, I have to speak up. I cannot, I mean, I do, I cannot take the easy path, right? Sometimes I just want to sleep. I, I, you, you know what I mean? Just kind of, you get it as well. Just kind of go and, you know, stay silent for, but you really let somebody else, let somebody else let fight somebody this else battle, but you can't, you really can't because the part of the part of life is the battle, right? Because with the battle comes all of the fun and all that stuff like that, the engagement, the interaction with people. But I want to make sure I want to make sure. And one of the reasons why I wrote the book was to make sure that people understand it does not take super people. 
literally, this is not a super person. You're not looking at a super person. If anybody was super, it was my mom. I literally was a hardworking, kind of average Joe who, who literally was pretty smart, did, okay, fine, 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 fine. A lot of us in the world, a huge amount of help differentiated me. And then literally all of the lessons of the person who died a long time ago came into play. It was like almost perfect, came into play where I could repeat her words and try to live by those words. And it was impactful and relevant today. And that's the point of the book. It's not about any great story about this, you know, I found gold in the, no, I literally just had a lot of help, a lot of help from the time I was born to now. A lot of help and you're using it now to, to pay it forward and make the world a better place. Ursula. Thank you. Uh, Ursula Maxine, Max Burns. Yeah. Uh, the book is called Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. Real tribute to your sweet mom, your incredible mom. You talk about your business experience, your life experience. It's a fantastic memoir. Congratulations on it. Thank you so much. A big thank you to Ursula Burns, who we all agree is very cool. Her book is called Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. Next week on Next Question. There was this very strange distinction between the public perception of what it meant to be a man and how men were um, uh, demonizing me and saying I was a traitor to my own gender, how women were publicly applauding me, but the men who needed it were privately writing me. How the hottie from Jane the Virgin, Justin Baldoni, is trying to change how we think about masculinity. One man, one reader at a time. That's next Thursday on Next Question. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements, Adriana Fazio, and Emily Pinto. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Listen. 
We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work.